Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is financial journalist and certified financial planner, Robert Powell. His work appears regularly in MarketWatch.com, USA Today, TheStreet.com, The Wall Street Journal, and AARP. Bob also serves as the Director of Retirement Education at Sensible Money and as Editor-in-Chief of the Investments and Wealth Institute's Retirement Management Journal. He's also an instructor in Salem State University's online Elder Planning Specialist Program. In addition, Bob hosts two podcasts himself, the Investments and Wealth Institute's Exceptional Advisor Podcast and the Callaway Climate Insights Podcast. He received his bachelor's degree from Marquette University and a master's degree from Boston University. Bob, welcome to The Long View. Uh, Thanks for having me, Christine. Well, thanks for being here. So we want to start out by talking about the current environment, a hot topic in the wake of last year's simultaneous sell-off in the stock and bond markets was whether the old kind of 60-40 portfolio is dead. We heard a lot of people sounding the death knell for the 60-40. Where do you come down on that question? So I wrote about this a little bit ago. I interviewed people like David Kelly and Tony Davidow and a couple others. And I came away thinking that the 60-40 is not dead. It was a bit of an anomaly what happened last year that that both stocks and bonds, uh, the, the negative or near negative correlation between those two asset classes were uh, nearly identical. And there have been other times in history where that has occurred as well. And no one rang the death knell bell for 60-40 portfolios back then. And I think the same is true now. It was a, a rare occurrence. But what I think it does do is it gives us the opportunity to maybe revisit how we think about asset allocation. And uh, and so maybe what one might consider doing is not necessarily having a portfolio of 60% S&P 500 and 40% AGG or something to that effect. But they might look at diversifying further their portfolio to make sure that they have large and small value and large and small growth and international and and maybe to the degree that they can stomach it, maybe some illiquid assets, uh, private uh, equity, private credit, et cetera. And so I think that's where I come down is that it's not dead, but it may need to be refined so that uh, you can accommodate the potential for another happening like we had last year. So you referenced uh, private equity, private credit instruments, potentially. I'm curious, are there any ways that you would suggest that investors obtain exposure to those assets, assuming that we're talking about kind of retail investors who do not have millions and millions of dollars to throw around? Yeah, I mean, that has historically been a problem that average investors might not have access to these kinds of instruments. The good news is I think there's more and more of these private credit, private equity instruments becoming available. They're becoming more democratized. I don't have any to sort of recommend off the top of my head, but I think folks should be on the lookout for these kinds of instruments if what they want is to maybe diversify further and perhaps increase the potential for their risk-adjusted performance. I I would caution you, when I did talk to Tony David about adding these kind of instruments to your portfolio, the notion is to not think of them as, say, 55% stocks and 40% bonds and then you know 5% alts, but to think of them within the context of your stock and bond portfolio. And it wouldn't necessarily be a third asset category. And the other is to think of them in terms of liquidity. So for many people, that's the biggest problem. You might look at you know interval funds, for instance, would be one example. And knowing full well that if you wanted your money right away, you wouldn't be able to get it. You might have to wait three months or even longer in some cases, depending on the period in which they open the fund to have liquidations. And, and so that means that for certain people, they need to really think about, can I afford to lock this money up? And obviously, if you're a pension plan, you can. If you're an individual investor, you may need to think long and hard about, one, the illiquidity factor. And two, also, I think, I talked to Tony David about this, is how do I measure the performance and to make sure that this is adding to the portfolio? Adding 1% of an illiquid investment may not you know, necessarily increase your performance that much. So you may be looking at adding you know, 5 to maybe 10% for it to make a difference. So you wouldn't necessarily want to add these things without some sort of 
plan in place to say, here's what my expected return might be, and, and here's what I think the effect will be on my liquidity needs. Focusing specifically on retirees, what additional assets belong in their portfolios, in your opinion? Um, I think folks need to think about how they'll generate income in retirement, ultimately, and what kind of risks they want associated with that income. Um, I'm always a fan of suggesting that you know, one maybe look at their retirement income plan much the same way a pension plan looks at how it meets its obligation to its uh, pensioners, which is we need to have a certain amount of assets to fund the liabilities that we have. And there can be no uncertainty that we meet those liabilities. So I would say folks probably need to think about, you know, what assets do I need to fund my desired lifestyle and the lifestyle that can't be put at risk. So that might be for some essential expenses, for others it might be essential and discretionary, but whatever it is that there's an asset there to cover that expected expense. And so for some that may mean bonds or zeros, or perhaps it might mean single premium immediate annuities. For others, it might mean a bond ladder, but whatever it is, I think you know people need to think about adding the assets that will fund their sort of necessary expenses at a minimum. Sometimes when the markets fall, we see investors overcorrect in, in one way or another. After the great financial crisis, for example, we saw a stampede into bonds, even though yields were very low and, and equities were cheap. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing anything you would characterize as an overcorrection today? So I, at least on the retiree side, I haven't seen that kind of overreaction. Um, what I have seen, though, is at least for folks who are saving for retirement, this notion of higher yields in the bond market. And that long last maybe the desire to go out a little bit longer on the yield curve in order to capture some of the higher yields. And I wouldn't necessarily call it an overreaction. I think it's more a reaction to a decade plus of a zero interest rate policy period in which people stayed very short with their money because uh, there, was, there were no other places to go except maybe the stock market. So I have seen maybe people maybe get a little bit more aggressive in terms of going out on the yield curve and taking advantage of higher yields. It's an interesting discussion, though, because I think sometimes there are, you have written about this, right? Others have written about it, this notion of nominal and real returns. And, and so while you know folks might be getting a higher nominal yield with interest rates as high as they are, they're still getting a negative return, at least on their interest income. So I think people also need to think about um, not necessarily taking just sort of just because yields are high doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. It's certainly better than zero percent for sure. But I think people need to be conscious of the fact that their real return is still negative. Right. That's such a good point. And I, you know, I know inflation has been top of mind for a lot of retirees, a lot of people in general. It's mm. declined a little bit, but it's still really quite high relative to the previous few decades. So thinking about retirees specifically, how should they protect their plans in case inflation stays elevated? And so maybe you can talk about sort of at the portfolio level and also at the total plan level, what people should be thinking about who are in retirement or about to retire. Yeah. So I think, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a fan of bond ladders or income ladders or asset liability matching for people who are building a retirement income plan uh, or or the bucketing approach, as you've written about, and people describe it in different ways. For many who are worried about inflation, it, it might be a case of where you shorten the first bucket, the safety bucket, for say, instead of maybe it being uh, three or five years, maybe it's uh, three to one year. And so that, you know, you're putting less of your money in instruments that would suffer the most from at least a higher rate of inflation in the short term. And should inflation remain elevated, that second bucket where you might have a mix of stocks and bonds presumably would be used to hedge against higher inflation rates. And then you maybe keep that bucket just as short as well, instead of, say, maybe a five to 10 year bucket for that middle 
middle bucket, maybe that is five to seven years. And then your third bucket, the bucket that's really designed for long-term expenses and the bucket that's really designed to hedge against inflation, maybe instead of it being set at 10 years, maybe it's now set at seven. So I would probably just shorten the bands on my buckets as I was thinking about what amount or percentage of my assets need to be in these various buckets in order to protect against both in the short term, a higher range of inflation, but also a persistently higher range of inflation. And the other is when I think about inflation, right, obviously people think about the loss of purchasing power and what that could mean, a dollar being worth 50 cents over the next 30 years. I also think people need to think about retirement at least according to the research I've read and perhaps that you've read as well, Christine, is that spending, real spending declines in retirement. So David Blanchett, when he was at Morningstar, had that famous study that looked at the smile. Michael Hurd at the Rand Corporation recently published a paper that echoed the same. JP Morgan, also with real clients looking at their spending patterns over the course of retirement, consistently show that spending declines over the course of retirement from the go-go years to the slow-go, and then may or may not increase in the no-go years. So I think people also need to be not putting inflation in the context of what their actual spending will be in retirement. And so while inflation may be high today, um, it's likely, perhaps, I'm willing to bet that it will return to maybe its 3% average over the course of the next three decades or so. And be mindful of the fact that as you're entering retirement, it won't be necessarily a 3% inflation-adjusted expenses that you'll face in retirement. It might be uh, 1% or 2% real. So again, right. it's sort of like thinking about, well, well, I can read the headlines, but I can also need to think about how this applies to my own plan and, and the plans of many other retirees. So it's it's one thing to think that inflation is is high and you'll forever have a loss of purchasing power, but it's a whole nother think about what will actually happen in reality. You referenced bond ladders earlier, but is there a risk to people building portfolios of individual bonds that smaller investors might have trouble finding a way to be adequately diversified, for instance? So I think, you know, I often start my retirement speeches by talking about how uh, complicated it can be, how confusing it can be, uh, how contrary it can be. I'm often reminded of the famous example I often use is that you have folks who might say that uh, stocks are great for the long run. And then on the other hand, you might have someone like Zvivodi saying uh, stocks are always risky. So how do you navigate a world in which you're getting you know, two different opinions from two different uh, esteemed subject matter experts? And so for anyone to do this on their own, I think it can be done, but I think it would require becoming a student of the subject and taking full advantage of all the tools that might be out there at Morningstar or other places in order to build a bond ladder or to be knowledgeable enough, right? When I began writing about retirement exclusively in 2003, reverse mortgages weren't a thing, right? Um, Secure Act 1 and 2 were not a thing. And so for people who have to sort of understand uh, all the products, regulations, strategies, pros and cons of strategies, um, you know, I think it becomes really difficult for someone to do it on their own. And if nothing else, I think having someone go to an advisor to act as a sounding board would be helpful. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, yesterday, I got an email from a, um, a family member whose advisor had recommended to them that they switch out of an investment they had into uh, an annuity. And the only context I had was a product sheet on the annuity. I had nothing from the advisor to say why we're doing it, what are the pros and cons of doing this, how does it fit into the family member's portfolio. And and mind you, this is a person with an advisor seeking out a sounding board. Uh, imagine a person without a, an advisor trying to figure out whether to buy this or that product and how it fits into their plan, I think is a, is a tall order. Can be done. Like I said, I think you need to become a student of the subject and, and become a student of the subject and perhaps in the same way that you become a, a student of your job <laughs> and to actually you know get a good feel for whether something or not makes sense for you, what investment to add, what strategy to consider and how to go about it. I'm curious, what did help? you <laughs> what what did you end up counseling your family member to do? Um, so. I ultimately said we have to have a phone call. I can't answer your question in an email because I what I want to do is understand 
what problem this product is trying to solve or what goal it's trying to achieve and how it fits in with the family member's portfolio. He's um, five years away from retirement. And it just doesn't seem to me like I could answer off the cuff whether or not someone should invest in this without necessarily understanding full well. Have they, have they done a retirement plan to estimate what their expenses will be in retirement? Have they looked at what their sources of income will be in retirement? And when they plan to claim Social Security or will they work part-time in retirement or whether their spouse will continue working, right? And so it gets fairly complicated fairly quickly to, to sort of um, give a one-off answer to whether someone should do a 1031 exchange or whatever the advisor was recommending. So I, I just feel like that that this person was, right, this family member was looking for a sounding board to an advisor giving them what may or may not be good advice. I don't know. So you've referenced that this can all be incredibly complicated. And one thing that I've wondered, I'm I'm curious to get your take on is whether it's possible to think of, you know, kind of a simplified product or service for decumulation. I think many of us would look at target date funds as kind of a home run for the accumulation mode, just in terms of solving asset allocation, and then making that asset allocation more conservative as the gold date draws close. Mm -hmm. There's no real equivalent for decumulation, and decumulation is so much more complicated. Could there be a product or is there a service that you know of that addresses the complexity and makes it simple for the end user? Mm. That's a great question, Christine. So I, I think target date funds or target income funds, you know, have never really taken off. And I think it's perhaps because it is difficult to create a one size fits all solution for people who are in decumulation, right? Everyone's income needs are different. I I often like to use the example, uh, you know, someone might be retired with a huge concentrated stock position from a company that they worked at. Someone else might have own uh, 12 rental income properties. Someone else might have a defined benefit plan from work. Um, someone might have retiree health care insurance. Someone else, you know, won't. And so it, it's really a matter of trying to say, you know, how do I generate the income? So it may be that a target income fund does generate income, whether or not, you know, is enough to meet someone's desired standard of, of living is a whole nother thing. And, and to determine that one would have to go through that, you know, that exercise of, for better or worse, creating a, a spreadsheet that looks at one's expenses row by row and over the years, column by column, and to adjust it for inflation and then figure out whether that income from your target income fund or any other source of income matches what your needs will be. And I think that's the hard part is there there are certainly software packages out there that people can get a rough idea, right? There's, you know, maybe if you have a custodian, Fidelity Schwab, TD, whomever, you know, and you're doing it yourself, they certainly have re retirement income calculators out there that can help you. The challenge, I think, is when things become very specialized and individualized. And so it's not possible for every software package to take into account unique circumstances, uh, a large inheritance, or like I mentioned, a rental income property or royalties from a book. So I think it's, um, I, w I wish I could say that there's a solution out there, but I think the good news is there are things that people can use. And I would say that what people need to do then is also maybe triangulate around the different things that they could be doing. I'm fond of telling people when they create their plan to make sure that they're doing some scenario planning around what's a best case, probable case, and worst case outcome to whatever it is that they're doing. And to sort of try to accommodate for all the potential things that could go right and all the potential things that could go wrong. You know, for instance, not to go off on a tangent, but like a lot of times people want to continue working in retirement, either full or part-time, and either out of want or need or, or both. But only, according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute, only half of people who say they want to continue working in retirement are able to do so. Um, half aren't able to do so because of some healthcare shock, perhaps, or perhaps they've had a layoff or they can't re-enter the workforce after they retired. And so, you know, there's all these things that software can't necessarily accommodate, but, you know, at least if you take, like I said, a worst case, best case, and probable case approach to some of these 
tools that you can find online, at least that might give you a better sense of, you know, whether your plan will succeed or not. Researchers Wade Fow and Alex Merguia have developed what they call the RISA, RISA style matrix. The goal is to help people develop a retirement plan that's specific to their personal preferences, like their desire for certainty and safety, for example. Is that sort of reflection important? And what are the types of questions that pre-retirees should be asking themselves? Yeah, I, so I, I think the profile is helpful. I've talked to Wade about it. I've written about it. I'm fond of it. Uh, when I wrote a story about it, I came out, my profile was a safety first and optionality, I think was where I came out. And uh, and in essence, what that meant was I wanted reliable cash flows to fund my essential retirement expenses and that my investment portfolio would be used for discretionary expenses. And what I think is interesting, I think everyone should go through what their preference is and two things that can be done with this. One is to understand maybe I already have a good degree of safety first in my portfolio, in which case that would match up with my preference. And it also, if I'm talking to an advisor or if I'm doing it myself, I could then say, well, do I need more safety first in my portfolio in order to uh, sort of meet my preference? Or do I have enough safety first and don't need any more of it? Maybe I need more optionality in my portfolio. So I don't think necessarily it's a tool that says this is what you should be doing. You may already be doing it, but it may not be prescriptive in the sense that this is what you should be doing with the rest of your money. And I think what's important too, at least if you are using an advisor, I, I'm often critical of advisors for whom they're a hammer and everything looks like a, a nail, right? We know that many advisors have a, a style that they use with their clients. It might be the 4% rule. It might be the bucket approach. It might be income annuities. And, and what we know is, that, you know, based on our conversation and, you know, your long history of writing about this is not every one solution is, is going to work for every client. And so what advisors, I think, need to be conscious of is the fact that someone might have a different preference and might have a need for a different solution than the one that they might offer. So I think this helps at least the advisors and the client connect a little bit better around what plan would be best for them given their preference and given their current asset allocation. So it's a good tool. You referenced your own personality, your own uh, placement on this matrix. And I'm curious more broadly, you've been focusing on retirement planning for so long. How has it affected how you think about your own retirement plan and your own retirement portfolio? Mm. So that's a great question. Everyone um, uh, is always asking me when I plan to retire. And I think there's there's uh, a couple. I wasn't asking that. <laughs> no, I know. But I, I think about it in those terms because it sort of weighs heavy on me. And I think a couple things. One is having a sufficient income to fund a desired standard of living for a very long time horizon, not just for myself, but for presumably my surviving spouse, since men tend to predecease their um, their wives. And so I, first of all, I think about it in terms of the household. And I also think about it in terms of risk, Christine. I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to manage and mitigate all the potential risks that one might face in retirement. So uh, you, you're well familiar with the Society of Actuaries has a chart, a table that looks at the 15 or so risks that you might face in retirement. Some of them are well-known like longevity and inflation and healthcare shock, but others are perhaps less well-known like bad advice and theft and death of a spouse or divorce or remarriage, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what I think is really important as I think about my retirement is I want to be somewhat assured that I've at least addressed those 15 risks in some form or fashion that either I have decided to self-insure them or I've decided to insure against this or I decided to um, self-insure and hedge it or something like that. So there's that element of it. There's also the sort of, I think, the psychological element. And I think this is the hardest part. You know, time and time again, people have to get used to moving away from the saving stage of their life to the spending down that pool of assets that you've saved over the course of 30 or 40 years and giving up the paycheck, the steadiness of a paycheck. And I think, you know, there's that psychological hurdle that one has to go over, myself included, that says having a paycheck is nice. I don't have to worry about spending down my assets. Um, and so I think, you know, for many people, it's getting through that barrier that says, I'm going to live uh, the rest of my life off my assets as opposed to um, my human capital. Right. I think that's a hard one, right? 
Right. And, and we see that. I encounter people who I believe are probably quite underspending relative to what they could because it makes them nervous to pull from their portfolios. And I think additionally, you've got people who just don't want to retire for that reason, that it's just too scary. The idea of actually turning their portfolio on, turning it into income mode after a year of accumulating. Mm. It is scary. And I think that's where the role of the advisor can come in, right? With someone who does a comprehensive look at income and expenses and is using a reasonable life expectancy calculation to say that, you know, we have a fairly good chance that you'll be able to fund your retirement from your your portfolio. And I think that's where, you know, that again, this is sort of where the advisor can come in. You know, it again, it's a sounding board for some and for others, it might be, you know, someone that you hire. But I, I think ultimately someone needs to have the comfort to know that it's okay to retire and that they'll be reasonably okay. You know, one of the interesting things it strikes me that, you know, the advisors rely on maybe too much so on Monte Carlo and, you know, will tell a client that they have a 70% chance that their portfolio will survive to the end of their life or 90% chance. And, you know, to me, I, I always think, well, I want a hundred percent chance. Why, why would I only want a 70% chance that my portfolio will survive the entire time? Of course, you know, so we look at Monte Carlo as this uh, magic bullet in the industry, but I think what people need is a, a year over year expectation that where they are, they're still in good shape or that they need to make adjustments in some form or fashion to their lifestyle, or maybe they can spend more because things are turning out far better than they thought. And oftentimes, I think that's more often the case is a lot of times people won't spend in retirement because they have this fear of outliving their assets or they have a fear of a healthcare shock. And you know, the role of the advisor can be one that says we've managed the risk of longevity and we've managed the risk of a healthcare shock. So there's no need to worry about either of those risks. And you're free to spend that money to go on a trip or to spend it on grandkids or to build an addition on your house or buy a second home or whatever it might be. That That's something an advisor, I think, can do. It's hard for, I think, software to tell someone that you've been given permission to buy a vacation home. Michael Finca has that interesting research that points to the value of an annuity in helping people mm. feel comfortable spending from their portfolios. Are, are annuities underutilized by retirees, in your opinion? So it's an interesting question. I the answer is they may be, and they may be by certain segments of the population. I once had the luxury of interviewing Bob Merton, Nobel Prize winner, who said that for the vast majority of middle Americans, annuities and reverse mortgages will be the two products that allow them to have a standard of living that they desire in retirement. So I'd say for many folks that are middle income, annuities probably are underutilized. For the highest income, highest net worth folks in the world, they may not be utilized at all, but may not need to be because folks who are in the, you know, the upper income quintiles and the upper net worth quintiles have probably more than enough assets to fund their desired standard of living and uh, can suffer sequence of return risk, perhaps. Um, and then for folks who might be in the lowest income quintiles, for them, Social Security is their annuity and tends to, if you believe some of the research, tends to replace 80% or so of their pre-retirement income. So uh, there's no need for annuity there because they have a, an asset that is 80% of their, you know, of their assets and is an annuity. So I think the answer is ultimately it depends, but I'd say middle America, it's probably underutilized and it's probably underutilized for good reason. There's a lack of understanding of, of these products and how they're used and when they're used and, and how they're sold, right? No one ever, ever, as, as you know, right? No one ever buys an annuity, right? More often than not, they're sold. And so people have a distrust of people who are selling these annuities because there's a commission associated with uh, the sale of those products. And it's also really hard to understand whether what you might need is a fixed annuity or a single premium annuity, or uh, maybe you need a variable annuity, or maybe you need a registered index linked annuity, or <laughs> and on and on and on, right? Or maybe you need a deferred income annuity, right? We, we use the term annuity broadly, but we do not necessarily know which annuity would be the best one to use for the goal that we're trying to achieve. Well, that's a great point. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of home in on that group that you earlier identified as being especially 
good candidates for an annuity purchase, if they're to try to like shorten up the list of things that they need to know about on the annuity front, are there any annuity types that you would say, well, this would be the most logical place for you to start, at least if you're pondering some sort sort of an annuity purchase? Yeah. So I think for folks who are on the cusp of retirement and if they were to go through the RESA profile and it turned out that what they wanted was safety first and they had no other source of safe income other than, say, Social Security, no pension, you know, a single premium immediate annuity might be an option. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the only thing that you should use in order to create safe income if that was your preference and your desire. But I would certainly start there. Um, On the other hand, if you were someone who was saving for retirement and you were 10 to 15 years away and you wanted to have the benefits of an annuity, a fixed payment at some point, but didn't mind putting your money at risk, you might consider a variable annuity or a registered index linked annuity. And that might help you build a sufficient enough nest egg and also create some sort of income for you in retirement when the time comes to annuitize that product. So I think it really depends on your life stage, you know, which product you might consider and what your risk profile is. It is an interesting product. Moshe Molesky has written about this and, and I'm sure you have as well. And I often think about when I'm planning for retirement too, there's this notion of how do we take the uncertainty out of managing the risk of outliving our assets or longevity? And for some, it might mean saying, I created a planning horizon to age 95, but on the odd chance I live past 95, well, I still need income. And there may be places for some to use a deferred income annuity, right? An annuity that doesn't necessarily start providing income until you reach age 85 or age 90 or whatever the case may be. And I look at that product as, you know, if if what you've done is created a, a certain date of death for yourself, that deferred income annuity then becomes the product that at least covers you on the odd chance that you live beyond your presumed date of death. So there's another you know, potential annuity that one could use if they're looking to, again, manage the many of the risks that they'll face in retirement. But it's not for everyone, right? It's sort of, again, if you were you know, in the parlance of the retirement management advisor program, if you were overfunded, you might not need a deferred income annuity. On the other hand, if you were constrained or perhaps underfunded, you might consider that product to fund your lifestyle. The other thing I'll I'll mention, Christine, if you don't mind too, is I often think back to, you probably had interviewed him at one point in your life, Farrell Dolan, Mm -mm. who had worked at Fidelity and created the four box strategy back in the, I don't know, was it the 19, early 2000s maybe or so? And I think that's an an interesting way for people to also think about building a retirement income plan is to match their guaranteed sources of income with their essential expenses and and match their sort of risky assets with their discretionary expenses. And if there's a gap to take a portion of the risky assets and to use it to purchase a single premium immediate annuity or some other guaranteed source of income. You referenced earlier that an annuity is a crucial source of lifetime income. You've written a lot about Social Security over your career. What Mm -hmm. are some of the most common mistakes people make about Social Security? Yeah, I'd say the 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 primary one is is using the break even age as the age to determine when you should claim Social Security. The break even age for many people is roughly about life expectancy, average life expectancy. And, uh, you know, as Dallas Salisbury used to say, was fond of saying, you know, half the people are going to die before life expectancy and half after. And you don't necessarily know which half you're going to be in. So people who use their break even age as their decision making tool are putting at risk the potential to live past life expectancy. And, And more importantly, especially if they were the higher earner in a couple they're also putting at risk their surviving spouse's survivor's benefit. And so I, again, I mentioned, I like to think about it in terms of the household. I think for folks who are using the break-even age and not considering the impact it might have on the household are doing a huge disservice to their family because obviously the longer you wait to claim Social Security, the higher your benefit will be, the higher the COLAs will be on your benefit, and then ultimately uh, the higher the benefit and higher the COLAs will be on the surviving spouse's benefit. And uh, and I think that's where it makes a difference. People, if you look at you know sort of claiming and what the one-year benefit will be relative to what it might be if you waited a year, you know, sort of mask the the true benefit of what delaying claiming could be, especially over the course of a 25 or 30 year horizon. 
I think the other, you know, sort of mistakes that people make are, you know, there are opportunities, you know, we often think of Social Security as a irrevocable decision, but it's not. And, you know, folks who might claim and feel like they made a mistake within the first 12 months, they can reverse their decision. And then for folks who have claimed Social Security and have reached full retirement age, they can suspend their benefit and then begin to enjoy delayed retirement credits. And so for folks who might say, oh, I, I claim Social Security, I can't get out of it. That's not necessarily true. You've got two opportunities, one in the first 12 months and one after full retirement age to perhaps um, increase your social security benefit. And, you know, and most people that, uh, that you've spoken to that I've spoken to say that there's few better investments than to, you know, generate an extra 8% on your potential benefit by delaying social security, you know, to age 70. So those are two of the common mistakes that I see. Yeah, that's helpful. I wanted to ask about um, long-term solvency and viability of Social Security. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office mm. forecasts that the balance in the old age and survivors insurance trust fund, the Social Security trust fund, will be depleted by 2033, so in about 10 years. Do you have a favorite remedy or perhaps a combination of remedies for addressing that? I don't have a favorite one, but I think what needs to be done is tinkering with all the sort of inputs that we could tinker with and making modest adjustments so that no one type of person, age of person bears the brunt of what solution there needs to be to at least avoid the possibility of someone getting 80 cents of their scheduled benefit. So I think increasing the taxable maximum could go a long way toward that. Uh, changing the bend points might help in terms of the formula. I'm not a fan of necessarily increasing the age at which you reach full retirement, because I think, again, it might be beneficial to white collar workers, but not necessarily to blue collar workers, you know, for whom, you know, retiring uh, earlier is probably something and, and retiring at 67 to get your full retirement benefit is, you know, seems like it's a high enough age at the moment. You know, and ultimately there's things, right? We can only do a couple things. We can reduce benefits for some. So that may mean uh, changing the taxation of retirement benefits after full retirement age. So maybe it's not 85%, maybe it's 90%. So, you know, we can reduce the benefits for some. We can also increase the taxes for others. And maybe, you know, like I said, we increase the taxable maximum. Ultimately, you know, it's it's curious. Everyone keeps saying, oh, Congress will do something by 2033. We don't have to worry about the possibility of people uh, only receiving 80% of their scheduled benefit. But I, I fall in the camp that Congress may or may not fix it. I, I don't know. They may or may not fix it to 100% of scheduled benefits. Wouldn't it be far better to, and I've written about this, wouldn't it be far better to plan for the possibility of that, to incorporate that into your financial plan? And I think what's interesting is, again, when we say 80% of scheduled benefits as a potential outcome for this, a couple of things come to mind. One is Social Security benefits, you know, represents different portions of someone's retirement income. So for the people in the highest income quintile, represents maybe 15% of their uh, of all their retirement income. The effect on them will be far less if we have a reduction than it would be on someone who's in the lowest income quintile, where Social Security represents maybe 80% of their of their retirement income. So I think people need to think about who this potentially could affect. And think about it in those terms. So if you're in the highest income quintile, maybe you can afford a 20% haircut in your Social Security benefit. For others, it would be unlikely, but I suppose uh, you know it could be an across-the-board cut for people of all income quintiles. And then we have to think about who will it affect in terms of ages. I can't imagine that anyone who's 67 or older and collecting Social Security benefits today will appreciate seeing a 20% cut in their benefits. So it may be that my children who are in their 20s you know, will suffer the brunt of having this uh, shortfall. And in which case, you know, my kids are already mad at me anyway, so I guess it's okay <laughs> if we give them that to begin with. But I but I think people do need to plan for the potential and, pe and the people who will be most affected. And I think the people who will be ultimately most affected will be if there's no solution, uh, or even if there is a solution, the, the people most affected will be younger people under age 45, and certainly folks who are in the upper income quintiles. Earlier in the conversation, you ticked off a number of risk factors that people should think about for their later years. And having a big long-term care expense later in life is one of those risk factors, especially for upper, sort of upper middle income people who have decent but not lavish retirement nest eggs. Mm. So 
This is a really troubled part of the whole retirement planning landscape. What's the best course of action for people who are in that situation? <sighs> this is one of the hardest ones in the world, Christine. So I, I think a, a couple things. So first of all, I, I would recommend that people, if they haven't done so already, there are at least two research papers, well, four, depending on how you look at it, um, that have been written about planning for healthcare costs in retirement in general. One was written by Sadukdo Banerjee at T. Rowe Price. There were a series of three papers that they published on the topic. Sadukdo had been at uh, the Employee Benefit Research Institute for many years, examining healthcare costs in retirement. And the other was written by Vanguard Mercer about what healthcare costs in retirement will be. And I would say at a minimum, everyone should read these papers so that they can stop thinking about what has become a very scary number for folks when they're told that they'll need $300,000 set aside at age 65 to pay for a lifetime of healthcare expenses, not including long-term care expenses. And what those papers do is, at least for me anyway, make healthcare costs a little bit more manageable in retirement. They talk a lot about using fixed sources of income to pay for expected expenses in retirement and maybe risky assets to pay for out-of-pocket expenses and non-sort of predictable expenses. And then they also take a look at what is the realistic percent of people who will have huge long-term care expenses in retirement. And at least according to their research, it's a few in number. It's a relatively small percent. Now, you don't know if you're going to be in that 3% of people, right, who have a $300,000 nursing home bill, or you'll be in the 97% of people that won't have that bill. So how do you plan for that, right? And I think that's the dilemma for many people is, well, for many people, long-term care insurance has not become the product of choice for lots of reasons. One, it's expensive. You'll never know if you're going to use it. Um, and oftentimes, <laughs> you, you hear horror stories about people having their coverage denied because they don't meet all the requirements of the policy. And so I think that leaves people with a couple things. One is to try to do the best they can with self-insurance. Um, potentially, although many people do, they you know try to become Medicaid eligible. They buy Medicaid annuities. They gift assets away, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a lot of gymnastics to perform to avoid the possibility of um, having a long-term care expense. I think the better thing for people, and it's a little bit harder, is thinking about the hybrid products, Christine, thinking mm -hmm. about long-term care insurance matched up with an annuity or matched up with a life insurance policy. And I think that at least accomplishes a couple things. One, it, it, it removes this fear that, <laughs> what if I don't need my long-term care insurance policy? I just spent all that money on something I never needed. Of course, no one ever feels that same way about when they buy property and casualty insurance, right? That if they never get into a car accident, no one ever really regrets not having car insurance, but that's how they feel about long-term care insurance. Oh, I didn't need it and I spent all that money. Um, and I think at least then when you're buying, looking at a hybrid policy, there's this notion that, well, if I didn't need it for long-term care, at least there was a, a death benefit, or at least there was an income stream that was generated because I didn't need it. So at least it satisfies that person who says, what if I don't need long-term care? On the other hand, those products are definitely more complicated than a traditional standalone long-term care policy or standalone life insurance or, uh, or annuity policy. So you'll definitely need someone to walk you through the prospectus on whether that makes sense or not. But for many people, I think that's you know, that's one answer. The other is, you know, for many people who own a home, they often think of their home as their break glass asset. And the break glass asset is uh, there's a healthcare event and I need to tap the equity in my home in order to pay for a long-term care expense. And I think for some people, you know, thinking about a reverse mortgage with a line of credit, a heckam with a line of credit might be the answer to folks who are worried about having a long-term care expense and needing money to pay for home health aids or assisted living or skilled nursing. So unfortunately, I think those are the only options that people have, right? Medicaid at the, at the worst end for many, um, self-insure for those in the highest income quintile, and then a, a mix of products, maybe, like I said, a, a mix of hybrid policies and reverse mortgages could do the trick. And the others, I think, when I think about long-term care, is also to think about playing the odds and thinking about, well, how long you might need a long-term care funding. And you know, for some, the average stay in a nursing home, if memory serves, is around three years. And so for some people, it may mean not necessarily buying a policy that covers a lifetime of being in a skilled nursing facility, but maybe it's, you know, three to five year policy. 
And so there are certain things that you can do, at least perhaps to make it more affordable. I wanted to ask about a program that you're involved with that the Financial Planning Association has recently rolled out. It's called the Elder Care Planning Specialist Program. Mm -hmm. What are the aims of the program? Yeah. So, you know, many advisors, we know they're aging, their client base is aging, and the needs of that client are changing. And so among other things, it's a 10-week course. It's a hybrid course. It's uh, a combination of on-demand webinars and then live lectures with the subject matter experts from that week session. And just by way of background, we're Bob Mortarstock and Anna Lee Kruger and myself are the founders of the online program. And we're taking the students through a series of uh, topics, understanding the aging process, what is the caregiver's role, uh, what are the legal issues of aging? What kind of documents do caregivers and recipients of care need to have in place, such as a healthcare proxy or a living will or DNRs, et cetera? Uh, what is it like to deal with clients who have diminished capacity or may be subject to elder abuse? How do you create an end-of-life plan? One of the more important things that advisors have to become involved in is typically structuring and conducting a family meeting where they might, among other things, talk about who the agent will be on a healthcare proxy and who the successor agent will be, uh, who will be on the HIPAA releases. You know, all these topics that in the past someone might have talked about, oh, we have a 60-40 portfolio and we have an expected rate of return of 8%. Uh, that might be fine when people were accumulating assets, but as people age, they start to need to think about having an aging plan in place. And the notion is you as an advisor and as a client would rather have an aging plan in place far before there's a crisis. And that's what this course is designed to do is ultimately help advisors create aging plans for their clients and how to create an elder planning team. You know, I, I think one of the interesting things that's happened of late is for many years, advisory teams might have an investment specialist, a tax specialist, and estate planning specialist. Um, increasingly, they will need to create an elder planning team around them, people, elder law attorneys, geriatric care managers, um, et cetera, uh, become familiar with all the facilities that might be in their client's area, continuing care, retirement communities, um, skilled nursing, assisted living, uh, become involved with the financial aspects of these facilities and what a deposit means and when someone might get a deposit back on their, on their money. And so it's all the elements of what occurs with an aging client I mean, from the financial aspects to the emotional aspects, we talk, um, there's one session, Susan Turnbull, who you may be familiar with, she instructs the students on how to create a uh, ethical will or a legacy letter. And uh, it's not financial, but it's important for people who may want to pass down what they valued and what they stood for separate and apart from their money. So it's a great course. The price point for FPA members is uh, $1,195. It's 10 weeks. It's a very personalized course. And at the end of it, you get, in essence, a template to use with your clients in terms of creating an aging plan. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on. No, forever. no, no. That sounds super <laughs> helpful. Um, Bob, for, for our last question, I just wanted to ask, you've been focusing on retirement planning for such a long time. As you reflect on the whole landscape, which aspects of retirement planning haven't gotten enough attention in your view? So, you know, I, I think there's two aspects of it. One is on the saving side. And I, I've long thought that when we made the transition from defined benefit to defined contribution, it was the near equivalent of giving people the keys to a car without having them gone through driver's ed. And I still feel that way. I think, you know, target date funds have sort of solved some of the problem that people had in terms of how they should invest their money. It certainly helps, but it hasn't made them necessarily more educated about what they're doing and why they're doing it and, and what the end game is. Uh, and so I still think there's a need for financial education that can help people plan for their retirement far better than what we've done today. And we've made great progress. But also when I think about like the results of like the Employee Benefit Research Institute Retirement Confidence Survey and how I think, you know, we've for all the years I've been writing about 
that survey in all the years I've been writing about retirement, the percent of people who are very confident about their retirement hasn't really changed all that much. So that, so that means I think we haven't done a necessarily a great job of helping people become confident about what they're doing. So that's on the saving side. And then I think on the on the income side, again, it's really a matter of people not having the tools that they need to analyze in a comprehensive fashion what their expenses will be, what their sources of income will be, whether they've managed and mitigated all the risks that they might face, what are the right products or what are the right accounts that they should be in. I think we've got a long way to go to help people figure out how to create the best plan for themselves, given all the tools that are out there and all the strategies that they could take advantage of. Well, Bob, I think we could talk for another hour, maybe two, but thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights with us today. We've really appreciated hearing from you and hearing your thoughts. Thank you, Kristen. Really appreciate the chance to chat about my favorite topic. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a moment to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. While this guest may license or offer products and services of Morningstar and its affiliates, unless otherwise stated, he or she is not affiliated with Morningstar and its affiliates. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.